If pastors preached to each other, what would they say? Would they exhort each other? Confess their shortcomings? We're going to find out today, and you might be surprised. I know I was. My name is Dan Dick, and this is Church Matters. Every year, Associated Mennonite Biblical Seminary in Elkhart, Indiana, hosts an event called Pastors Week. It's a time especially for pastors to connect with each other, reflect, seek new inspiration, and recharge their batteries. On January 26th at Pastors Week 2012, Willard Metzger, Executive Director of Mennonite Church Canada, was one of the preachers. He pondered what it means to be worthy of God's calling and confessed some fears and challenges in his ministry. His address needs no more introduction than that. I found his words inspiring. I hope you do too. As we look at Revelation 4 and 5, we might be tempted to be gravitated by the, or gravitate to the, the question of who is worthy, and that there was no one found to be worthy. Reminds me of a time where I was preparing for a communion service in my, when I was pastoring. I don't remember what happened that particular morning, but I do remember that I arrived to church in a rush and not in a very worshipful state and feeling terribly unworthy, incredibly hypocritical. Maybe there are pastors who can resonate with this. Sometimes this has happened. And I recall distinctly that Sunday morning sitting behind the pulpit and as, the, as the emblems uh, were being passed out amongst the congregants, I was sitting back behind the pulpit just musing and pouring out silently my heart to God. Oh, Lord, I am so unworthy to be even receiving communion, much less trying to lead in this communion service. I am so just on and on and convincing God of my unworthiness. And I remember distinctly, it's as if it was as clear as the bell, as the bell, the voice of God, in the voice of the Spirit, however we want to reframe it, but I heard it so clearly, God saying, so tell me something new. <laughs> and I was, I was numbed, you know, and, then, and then it just, the Spirit went on to say, if you could be worthy, if it were possible for you to be worthy on your own, we wouldn't have to have a communion service. This is what the communion service is all about. Of course, you're unworthy. <laughs> That's why we celebrate this communion. I want to tell you just a few stories in my time this morning. As a young pastor, even before I began pastoring, I yearned for a fresh renewal of the church. That was from that was deep in my in my soul and in my heart. And not so much a renewal of conviction and purging as much as one of a, of a heightened awareness of God's passion within the church. A heightened awareness of, ga- of God's passion. I suppose it was like I wept bitterly. You know, I find myself wanting to almost instinctively resonate with verse four in Revelation five, began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll. I struggled with this. 
not knowing how to flesh out this yearning. I was frantically fearful of pride, but restlessly aching for the wind of the Spirit to blow anew. It was a struggle. And I think this is where the illness of North American evangelicalism resides. Not that evangelicalism is inherently ill, but this is where evangelicalism has become infected, I think, with North American opportunism. Christian leaders dream of successful churches, and and rightly so, but opportunism subtly stalks the passion for God and slowly begins to distort it. Soon the yearning for renewal becomes a dream of influential leadership. The panting for the move of God's spirit turns into a breathless chase for significance. I admit, my visions for renewal included my place of humble involvement. (laughs) Maybe even a central place of humble contribution. Obviously, in, in the words of in the framework of Revelation 5, I wouldn't be worthy to open the scroll, but I could be the one who meekly escorts Jesus to the scroll so he could open it. You know, something like that. <laughs> Undetected opportunism. It is subtle, it is infectious. It is unhealthy, but I think it is rather common. Several years ago, I had another conversation with God that seared me. So it's not that I only have conversations with God several years apart, but this one is particularly relevant again. Again, again, it seemed as though God was, was giving me a vision and said to me, Willard, I have a vision of a glorious revival, renewal, all across Canada of such an extent that Canada has never seen anything like this before. It will be glorious. It will be splendid. It will be absolutely thorough. Out of this failure will come this phenomenal, incredible revival and renewal. I need someone to fail for me. Could you do that? Could you fail for me so that this glorious revival could take place. I was reminded of that conversation again during yesterday morning's worship, that the suffering of God's people would be used for the redemption of other nations. Opportunism and success hardly know what to do with that kind of framework. They either become loud mockers or quiet dissenters. Suffering usually stands by itself alone. It is rarely invited into the chambers of accomplishment and achievement. But in God's economy, it is the slain who are the victors. It is the defeated who have the conqueror's right to open the scrolls. As an Anabaptist people, we know this. We've been raised in this. But still... The lure of heroism kept 
tugging at me. I uncovered it in its most disgusting fashion, at least in a most disgusting fashion for me, just a little over two years ago. I was in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, with a team, a church team from uh, Nova, uh, New Brunswick, who had just arrived that day in January, the day that the earthquake occurred in Port-au-Prince. We never got our plans, we were never materialized because we were spilled out onto the streets, part of our hotel where we were staying collapsed, but all around us, houses just, just crumbled and we were out on the street. None of us had any, we were just normal patrons in this hotel. There was one person from the U.S., uh, I think had worked several years in the U.S. Agricultural Department or something, had some first aid training, he announced, and that was the only first aid we had. A little boy had an injury, and so attended to that. That was the first frantic rush. But that opened up a whole night of tending people that were injured in, in the earthquake. It started, it had two waves. The first was what I call sort of the wound or the walking uh, wounded. They were, they were somewhere on the street, and as an earthquake happened, something fell on them. And then the second wave, which started about midnight, you could tell these were people that were being pulled out of the rubble. They were all covered in dust and their injuries were much more severe. But I'm not exaggerating when I say it was a, a steady stream all through the night. It never, it never stopped and only escalated as we got closer and closer to the morning. Word out in the street was that there was a doctor at our hotel. And so people were being channeled to come there, and, and we had nothing. We had, eventually, I mean, first we were all out on the street making preparations to sleep on the street for that night. And as the wounded emboldened us, we made ourselves back into the, into the hotel. People started ripping bed sheets into bandages, started to break off baseboards for makeshift splints. And this was all night, nonstop. I was there with a colleague, that's when I was still with World Vision Canada as Director of Church Relation. My colleague was there from Eastern Canada, and we had the small team, the small church team, adult team. And he, my colleague, was, was, was in the furrow of everything. He was, he was in there, I use the expression, in there like a dirty shirt. I'm not sure if that's a familiar term in the U.S. Just rolled up sleeves in there like everybody else was trying to do, just in there and did whatever they could. And, and I wanted to do that as well, but I looked back at my, at my team, and they were sort of cowering in the corner a bit. And I knew that, I mean, I had this struggle inside, that their lure of, of heroism was there. I, I wanted to get in there like my colleague as well, and, and I wanted to do what I, what I could do. I mean, sure, I want to help, but it's, I, I want to be there. And yet, I'd look at this team, and I felt like I... I had to be responsible to my team. If both of us are just lost into this mayhem, then what would keep them from, from panic? And I think my responsibility is, is with the team. And so for most of that night, pretty well all night, I just stayed with the team. As my colleague would be in and out, and I want to admit I was a little resentful. I wanted to be the hero too. I stayed with the team. 
The next morning, what we thought to be a steady flow all through the night became an absolute torrent because people would make, them, make their way out of the rubble into the middle of the street and just wait there with their loved ones, afraid to navigate through all this rubble and the, and the blackness of the night, and so would wait. And as soon as it became daylight, as soon as it became daylight, they came from everywhere. And this is after a whole night. We, have, we had nothing left. Folks had nothing left. With daylight, the team made its way back into the, to the confines of the hotel, into a corner, and so there it was, they felt safer. And so then I had my opportunity to wade into the disaster. I was paired with somebody from Miami who was there with a company erecting cell phone towers. He didn't have first aid, I didn't have first aid, but now I was engaged. I had bedsheet bandages draped over my arms, and I had a styrofoam cup of watered-down iodine. That's all I had. My partner had a latex glove and a makeup scissors, and that was it. Parents were crowding all around us, tugging at our, at our clothing, just jostling for, when is it our turn, you know, with their children? Look at ours. Look, look, at, look at mine. Look at mine. And this futile thing we tried to, it, it, was, it was inadequate. I looked over and there was a father who was cradling about a 10-year-old son who had obviously had some head injuries. Not that it was all bloody and gory, but the one eye was all swollen shut and the other eye was very listless. This is a larger child and so the father was trying to make eye contact with me and, and indicate, what about us? <laughs> I looked at my bedsheet bandages watered-down styrofoam cup of iodine, and I looked over here, he come, here comes somebody with a, a, a lacerated sort of cut in the leg, and so I dab it clean with our watered-down iodine, wrap it up with our bedsheet bandages, and look over at the father and son again, and look over here, here comes a little girl with a with an injury on the head, and so I dab it clean again with a makeup scissors, cut away some of this hair, dab it clean with our watered-down iodine, wrap it up with our bedsheet bandages. It was, it was horrible. It was, it, it was, it was the, the useless tending to the helpless. I looked over at the father and son again. By about the third or fourth time, of looking over at the father and his son, we make eye contact again, and we have this unspoken communication. He didn't know English, I didn't know Creole, but our eyes communicated that there is there's nothing. This is, this is nothing. You need more than what we have, and, and we have nothing more, and there is no place to go. They'll never forget that. The father just sort of nodded in, in recognition, and I never saw them again. It's like that for me. I came face to face with my utter insufficiency. I wept and wept bitterly because there was no one worthy, no one to help. And I was absolutely useless. But I would say that something in me died there in Haiti. That allure of being the hero, at least for now, 
has lost its attraction. I fear it will yet, I, well, I fear I will face it yet again, but for now, that heroism repulses me. This has been a gift, I think. It is amazing how the approach to leadership is different when one is not trying to protect themselves or to assure success. I was reminded of that now one year ago this time. I was attending the Canadian Council of Churches Denominational Leaders Retreat, and we had just been engaged in conversation of our changing dynamics in our culture in Canada and the U.S. as well, of how what it means to be church is changing at a congregational ministry. And so then that common stress, distress, as denominational leaders of trying to change what appears to be unsustainable denominational structures into something that will meet this new dynamic that is still as yet unknown. <laughs> it can be very stressful. And I remember that evening, I walking, was walking out on a stroll by myself, and I remember thinking to myself, in my new role as executive director of Mennonite Church Canada, with all the all the things waiting there, all the files that were on my desk that I knew could not be shoved aside. This, this is what it would mean to be in leadership at this time. And I remember thinking, you know, I have no sense, no sense of promise from God that God will keep me from pain. And that's all right. I don't expect that. And I don't even have a sense of a promise from God that, that God will assure success. And I, and I don't even need that. I do have the assurance of one promise from God in this time of leadership. That nothing I do will be able to destroy the church. Nothing I do will be able to destroy the church. But you know, that is kind of freeing, isn't it? <laughs> when I've faced in that Haiti, that sense of just my utter insufficiency, I have the promise that still, in that insufficiency, there's nothing I can do that can destroy the church. So this morning, as we come to participate in communion, we can bring our best as church leaders, as pastors. We can bring our best. We can bring that yearning to do the best that we can do. But recognize that our best will not be sufficient. Knowing, though, that there is no failure, there is no shortcoming, there is no insufficiency that will be able to destroy the church or ruin God's plan. There is one worthy. It's not us. That's all right. There is one worthy to open the scroll. And for that reason, we come with who we are, with all we have, and all of its insufficiencies, confident that the worthy one is the one who we will follow to the glory of God. Amen. That was Willard Metzger addressing pastors from across Mennonite Church Canada and Mennonite Church USA 
during Pastors Week 2012 at Associated Mennonite Biblical Seminary in Elkhart, Indiana. Thanks to all our listeners wherever you are. Church Matters is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Thanks, we couldn't do it without you. If you would like to help us sustain this program or support other Mennonite Church Canada ministries, call 1-866-888-6785 or visit MennoniteChurch.ca. You can also email us at churchmatters at MennoniteChurch.ca. My name is Dan Dick and you've been listening to Church Matters. May you be called, equipped, and sent to be the church in the world today and every day thereafter. Thanks for listening and see you next time. As you go out from here, may the Lord go with you. The face of God shine on you every day. We are sent by God wherever we are living, salt and light as people of the way.